Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17, we're in the middle now of a sermon series entitled Man in the Making. We're talking about the life of Simon Peter. And this brings us to the story in Matthew 17. It's called the story of the transfiguration. It's a very important story. We know this is important because of the way it's included in every single gospel except for John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this story, and they tell it in virtually the very same way. And uh, that makes it important. But it's also an incredibly mysterious and complicated story. So let's read it together and then uh, see how the Lord will speak to us. Matthew chapter 17 is where I am in verse 1. Six days later, let's, well, I'll stop. Six days later, uh, all of the versions of the story connect it very, very importantly to, to something that happened six days before. So six days later than what? That, that becomes the question. So what's the answer to that? Six days later than what? What just happened six days ago? It's the story that we read last week. It's exactly picking up where we left off. Uh, last week we were in Matthew chapter 16 where Peter has this amazing moment of confession where he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So it's six days after that. But more importantly, remember right after Peter said that, then Jesus began to talk about the cross for the first time. And from then on, Jesus is telling his disciples that he will uh, be crucified, that he will die at the hands of sinful men, that he'll be buried, that he'll be raised again in, in three days. So it's six days after that. Remember when Jesus said, I'll be going to the cross, Peter had said, no, no, that's never going to happen to you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. It's six days after that. All right. So let's start all over. Six days later, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. But even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. Disciples were terrified and fell face down on the ground. Then Jesus came over, touched them, Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus. As they went back down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. I believe it was um, a lady named Louisa Kirby, an uh, old saint from our church. Louisa died at Hopkins Nursing Home in the middle of the night uh, a number of years ago. Uh, so I was called. It was probably 2 or 3 in the morning, and I went there to, to be with Donald, her husband. And uh, Anyway, they were, the coroner was taking Eliza out of the room, and I stepped out into the hallway, and I looked way down the hall, and I saw sitting out in the lobby another lady from our church. Her name was Agnes Kelly. Her name was Agnes. Agnes, at that point, was 104 years old, 104. And she's sitting out in the lobby of the nursing home at 3 in the morning. So I went out to talk to her. Agnes had her days and nights mixed up. I knew that. So I just went up and, and pulled up a chair and started talking to her. Uh, asked her what she was doing. She said she was just, you know, had so much to do. <laughs> so she was out in the lobby. 
I you know, told her she should be in bed, that sort of thing. We were just kind of talking back and forth. But all of a sudden, she leaned over to me, and she said, you said you go to my church? So now I know she doesn't, she's forgotten who I am. She doesn't know who I am. She said, you go to my church? I said, yeah, I'm from the church. And she said, tell me, what do you think about that preacher down there? So I thought, and then I said, well, what do you think of that preacher down there? That's my moment. So what do you think of that preacher down there? She said, oh, I like him. And so I said, I think he's great. <laughs> I did, you He's great. He is great. Uh, the thing is, Agnes in that moment forgot me or didn't really know who I was. And since she didn't know who I was, she wasn't able to relate to me for who I am, right? And, uh, and that's a spiritual principle that I want to begin as we look at this story today. You can't really relate to Jesus for who he is as long as you don't really know who he is. And this is the importance of this moment of transfiguration. The disciples need to know who he is. Now, who he is is the incarnate Son of God. We know that he is the Word made flesh. He is God in the flesh, but you just can't hardly miss the fact that, that the flesh is what you see. And so the disciples, like everybody else and like us, are often tempted to relate to Jesus by his appearance. For, for as, as he is seen on earth, as he's seen as the man walking, God in the flesh, right? And so in this moment of transfiguration, they're able to see him for as he really is. Now, it's not that Jesus becomes something, you know, moment, momentarily becomes something that he wasn't already. He is shown for his glory because he is already glorious. He is glorious from all eternity. He doesn't suddenly become something that he wasn't. It's just in this moment and for only a moment, he is revealed to be who he actually is for what he is. He is glorious. The curtain is pulled back and they're able to see what ordinarily they cannot see because they have to see him as glorious. They have to know him as glorious because if you don't know him as glorious, then you don't know him. He is glorious. You understand? And so in this moment, they're called up to the mountain. They're, they're able to see Jesus in his glory so that they can know him as he is, so that they can relate to him for who he is. My hunch is if they needed it, Lord knows we need it. We need this moment. We need to see him for who he is. We need to know his glory. And so this story is for us. Uh, let's dig into it today. Now, as I said, it's a really mysterious story. It moves fast. I mean, in the space of about seven verses, I mean, it's just, it's hard to keep up. The way the glory continues to blind, the way Moses and Elijah just, just pop up, and then the voice of God, and all this happens in the space of this many verses. And it raises so many questions. So honestly, today, I just want to walk us through the questions, my questions. And, and these are the questions I ask when I come to this passage. Um, hopefully the questions will lead to some understanding. So let's just, let's just start with the basic question. What happens? I mean, what is this and who's it for? Now to figure out who it's for is probably also going to help you understand what's actually happening. But what's happening here? The word transfigure just means to transform. It's, the Greek word is metamorphosis. It's just that idea of, of, of change, transfigured. But as I say, it's not that Jesus is, is changed essentially. His appearance is transfigured, but he doesn't become something he wasn't already. So it's not that. Who's it for? Like, like, who is this for? 
It's a very important moment, it seems, for Jesus, but I don't think this is for Jesus. He knows who he is. He doesn't need this. Now, this voice of the Father that says, this is my beloved Son, he brings me great joy, listen to him. There must be some affirmation in that for Jesus. For Jesus, the the human embodied Son of God who now has set his face toward Jerusalem to be crucified, there must be some affirmation in hearing the voice of the Father, but I'm telling you, Jesus knows the Father. He knows the voice of the Father. He can spend any moment in in private prayer and hear the voice of the Father. I'm not really thinking this is for Jesus. So who else is it? Well, there's Moses and Elijah. They're there. I have a hard time thinking it's for them. Although, when you think about it, This is kind of the answer to a prayer Moses prayed a long time ago on a different mountain. Do you remember? Because Moses, in the presence of God, asked for what? I want to see your glory. Show me your glory, right? And this is, in in some ways, an answer to that prayer. I mean, he is able to see right now, in this moment, the glory of God's only Son. I mean, the glory of Jesus revealed, transfigured. Moses gets to see that, so in some ways... This is an answer to Moses' prayer, but at the same time, I don't really think that Moses and Elijah need this to know who Jesus is. I think by now, they're quite aware of the glory of God. I don't really think this is for Moses and Elijah. So who does does that leave? Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John, the the three disciples. It's got to be for them. It, It must be for them. So why? Why? Why do they need this? Why are they given this blessing? Well, again, every time the story is told, it's always connected carefully back to what happened six days ago. And six days ago, Jesus begins talking about the cross. After Peter makes that magnificent confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, then Jesus begins to talk about the cross. And Peter doesn't deal very well with the new revelation about how Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, is going to suffer, die, be buried. Peter doesn't deal very well with that cross, that that talk about the suffering of Jesus. And so I think this is part of why the moment of transfiguration is so important for Peter and the disciples. They need to understand something. They need to know that Christ's glory is not incompatible with his suffering. They need to know that because honestly, I don't think that's logical. You wouldn't think your way to that. You just wouldn't. When Peter says you're the Christ, the son of the living God, he's understanding who Jesus is, his power, his authority, his identity, and you don't see a cross in any way casting a shadow across that confession. I mean, if Jesus is God in the flesh, then he's glorious, right? And he's magnificent. He's all-powerful. How can you even begin to square an all-powerful, magnificent, glorious God who would be taken by the hands of sinful men and crucified and killed and, and, and buried? It's, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. But it's not logical. That strength can be revealed in weakness. That life can come on the other side of of death. That sins can be removed by taking him who knew no sin and making him sin itself so that we could become the righteousness of God. None of that is logical. 
And so at this moment, I think the moment of transfiguration helps the disciples to understand that yes, yes, he will suffer, he will die. All of that is gonna happen, but that does not in any way threaten or undermine who he is. He is still Christ in his glory. He is still the son of the living God. He is all of that, and yet he will suffer. Throughout Scripture, whenever important revelation is given pertaining to salvation or salvation history, it's usually accompanied by displays of God's power. Around Moses, for example, in the giving of the law, the Exodus, there's this whole cluster of miracles associated with that. Elijah the prophet speaking the word of God, and there are miracles associated with him. In the book of Acts, with the apostles, with the coming of the Spirit, there's this cluster of miracles associated with that. Whenever new revelation is given pertaining to God's plan of salvation, he, he verifies it, he confirms it, he displays his power. Uh, to underline the truth, to, to, to see that. So in this moment, as Jesus begins to talk about the cross and try to prepare the disciples for the unthinkable suffering that is before him, he wants them to understand that that does not in any way mean that he is not still the Christ, the son of the living God, who is the embodied glory of the maker of heaven and earth. So I think it's for them, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, so why them? I mean, you know, like three. He's got 12. Honestly, if you read the Gospels closely, Jesus has a lot of followers, a lot of those you could call disciples. And the scriptures will refer to other disciples and, and we'll learn names we didn't know. Because we know the 12. So out of the hundred or maybe hundreds of disciples, there were the 12, you typically called the apostles. And those are the ones we know because Jesus drew them in closer. They're allowed to hear his teachings more intimately. They ask him questions. They literally walk with him and, and, and sleep with him and, and eat with him. I mean, they're living their lives with him, those 12. So out of the larger number, there is already this smaller number. And, and then if you pay attention in the Gospels, out of that smaller number, the 12, there is the three. These three. Peter, James, and John. I don't really know why it is that they're allowed to have these privileges, but they are often invited in moments like this. They are invited to come into some very intimate moments between Jesus and his father. Peter, James, and John are often invited to come with Jesus when he goes alone to pray. Now, in every one of those instances, you quickly realize it's not because these guys are special. Peter, James, and John are invited to pray with Jesus, but they can't pray with Jesus for the simple reason that Jesus, every single time, will pray longer than they can stay awake. They fall asleep. They fall asleep. And although they are privileged to revelation and, and perhaps words that the other disciples don't hear, they don't understand it. They miss it. They're as likely as anybody else to make a mess of it. So Jesus has, you know, Mo, Larry, and Curly up here on the mountain this day, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, that they deserve this privilege. You with me? It doesn't elevate their status. So, so you're asking me, so why them? Well, why those three? And I'm telling you, I don't know. I, I don't know. But I think not knowing that helps us understand something about our own lives. You're blessed in ways you could never deserve. It's called Grace. Just like Peter, James, and John are blessed in, in these ways that they don't deserve. And I can't explain it. 
They're not more important than the other nine. You understand, they don't have a higher status than the other nine, and yet they just receive these moments that the others don't receive it. I can't explain why other than just to say it's grace. It's grace. And it's the same way grace works in your life. You have received blessings you do not deserve. The fact that you think you deserve them means that you can't truly be thankful for them, and therefore you don't even recognize that they're blessings. But when you really begin to understand the blessings of your life, how you don't deserve any of it, not even the breath in your lungs, that's a gift from God. You don't even deserve that. I don't either. I receive blessings upon blessings upon blessings every single day, and I don't deserve any of it. Now, on top of that, you receive blessings sometimes I don't receive, and I don't understand that. And I receive blessings that you don't receive, and you're wondering about that. We look across at each other. You look down your own pew, and there are people sitting there who have blessings you don't have. And sometimes that makes us jealous. Sometimes it makes us wonder why the world is so unfair. I just remind you, it's, it's, it's all grace. We don't receive the same blessings, but we are all so very blessed, way beyond anything we deserve, way beyond anything we can even imagine. We're just blessed because God is a gracious and good God who just showers us with blessings. You don't deserve any of it. Peter, James, and John don't deserve this any more than the other nine. I can't explain why they have it and the others don't. It's just grace. I guess I could also say that that whatever blessings I receive that, that you don't or that you receive that I don't, it's God who blesses us because he knows perfectly what his plans and purposes for our lives are. He knows what he's going to do with you. He knows what he's put in you. He knows what you need, and therefore he gives you what you need. It's all grace. It's all blessings. Peter, James, and John receive this, this blessing, this privilege, because somehow that aligns with God's purposes for their lives. It doesn't make them special. It doesn't make them more important. That's why on the way down the hill, Jesus says, hey, boys, listen, I don't want y'all telling about this until after Easter. Why does he say that? Because he knows how we are. You know, Peter, go back down the other night and say, yeah, what have y'all boys been doing? Well, I've been hanging out with Moses and Elijah. Did I mention that Jesus was glowing in the dark while this was happening? Yeah, he just took me and James and John. I don't know why he didn't invite you. Did I mention I was hanging out with Moses and Elijah? Did I say that? Yeah. Because yeah. that's how we are. You know, we like to take those blessings and then inflate ourselves. And Jesus says, there ain't going to be any of that. I don't want you even telling this story until sometime later. You know, it's not about them. It's not about you. You're blessed in ways you could never deserve. It's called grace. So why Peter, James, and John? Grace. This <laughs> is grace. I don't know. They don't deserve that. But why Moses and Elijah? Now, that's a good question. I've had lots of parties, lots of high points in my life, but Moses and Elijah had never made appearances. This is amazing. Moses and Elijah appear standing beside the transfigured, you know, glorious Jesus. This is something. Why them? Why are they there? Well, I don't know. Y'all getting tired of me saying that? I don't know. I don't know exactly. Moses in the Old Testament, in salvation history, Moses is the lawgiver. He's the lawgiver. Moses is the one that tradition tells us writes the first five books of the Old Testament. That's Moses. 
So Moses, in so many ways, man, Moses just embodies the law, embodies you know, the, the Torah, embodies all the promises uh, that, that are contained in the Old Testament, right? That's Moses, the lawgiver. And then Elijah, he's like prominent among the prophets. He's one of the most famous prophets in the Old Testament. He's you know, standing there as one of the prophets who would say, thus says the Lord God. You know, this is the word of the Lord. Elijah was one of those prophets who could speak the word of the Lord to the people. So why Moses and Elijah? I don't really know, but my hunch is that Jesus is portrayed here as the fulfillment, the fulfillment of everything that the Bible points to and promises. See, Moses is the lawgiver, but the law doesn't save anybody. The law was never going to save anybody. It was never expected that we would reach salvation by just being good people, keeping all the rules, keeping the law. That's not what the law was for. The law was given so that we could understand our sin, therefore understand our need for a Savior, and Jesus is the Savior. That's why the Scripture says Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. We are given his righteousness, something we can never attain by the law. In the same way, the prophets, Elijah, who says, you know, thus says the Lord God, he speaks the word of the Lord, but Jesus himself is said to be the word made flesh. Not the word made sermon. The word made flesh, Jesus is the living word of God in flesh. So understand, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the Bible points to and promises. Jesus is standing there, and in that moment, Jesus standing between Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, God the Father speaks and says, this is my son, listen to him. Listen to him. My next question brings us to Peter. Now, it says that Jesus' appearance is transformed, his face shines like the sun, his clothes are flashing like lightning, the Greek says. It's amazing. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appear and begin talking with Jesus. Like, what in the world were they talking about? I, I told you, this is in the Gospel of Matthew. It's also in Mark. It's also in Luke, Mark 9 and Luke 9. Yeah, in, in one of the other... Uh, and one of the other narratives, places where we find this, it says that they were talking about Jesus' exodus. I love that. His departure from Jerusalem, his exodus. But anyway, Jesus is there, Moses and Elijah, and the three of them are talking. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are in a conversation, and Peter feels the need to butt in. Now, by now, you're, you're catching on to Peter. This is sort of typical Peter. Like, why does he feel the need to say something? Again, you got to read the other, the other versions are, are precious. In Mark chapter 9, I think it's verse 6, we get this, the same story, but we get a little detail right here. Mark chapter 9, verse 6 says, when Peter started talking, he didn't know what he was saying. That's what the Bible says. Mark chapter 9, verse 6 says, Peter was talking, but he didn't really know what to say. Now, I'm not, at this point, I'm not preaching. Preaching, I'm just telling you, like, words to live by. But in any moment of your life when you don't really know what to say, Whatever you say is going to come out dumb. It's just going to come out dumb. So don't say it. And like, it's like Peter, you know, don't, don't, no. But, but Peter, he's going to say something. Just, he don't know what to say, but he feels compelled to say something. And it comes out dumb. And it is dumb. It is dumb. What does he say? Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. Okay, that's not dumb. That's just, you know, his feelings. It's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, 
I'll make three houses. And the Bible, I'm not saying it's dumb. The Bible says that's dumb. Mark chapter 9, verse 6 says that's dumb. Why is it dumb? Why does he say that? It's not so much dumb. I get it. I really get it. Peter, in this moment, would love to somehow make this last forever. He is in the presence of the heavenly Jesus, the heavenly Jesus, Jesus in his glory, Jesus whose whose face shines, whose clothes flash like lightning, and Peter could stay there forever. Now remember, earlier, six days ago, when Jesus was talking about how he would suffer, how he would be taken by sinful men and put to death and buried in the ground for three days, I mean, during that, Peter couldn't take that. Peter said, no, Lord forbid, Jesus, that's never going to happen to you. And that's when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Peter really didn't like any of that talk about a suffering Jesus. But he's all about this heavenly Jesus. And you would be too. In this moment, Jesus is present in his glory. And Moses and Elijah. And Peter just wants to make this a permanent thing. Hey, I will call real estate agent right now. I'll see if there's any property for sale on top of this mountain. I will build us three houses and we can all just, we can live here. It's dumb, but I get it. I mean, don't you get it? Because here's the thing. In my own life, in your life, you're going to have mountaintop experiences with Christ. I have. And there have been seasons in this church's life, for example, that, that I just, I wish it could have gone on like that forever, you know. Or moments in my own life, you know, like as a parent when your children are small. Like if you could have just kind of frozen some of those moments and, and kept them that way, you know, build a house there and just stay. But that's not how any of this works. That's not how life is. And it's certainly not how the Christian life is. You will have mountaintop experiences with Christ, but your life with Jesus will be lived down in the mess of the world. As a youth minister, I saw this every single year when we would take church kids to church camp. Teenagers would go to church camp and have amazing weeks in the Lord. I mean, amazing. And some of you remember those weeks. They were the mountaintop experiences of your life. And it would break my heart because every single time, without fail, every single year, kids come back from camp, and as soon as they come back, I mean, the devil's waiting for them. And as soon as they come back, you can just watch. I mean, the devil just lines it up, and he will try to steal everything that the Lord gave them on the mountain. I mean, this is just how it works, and it's how it works in this story, too. If you read ahead, they come down the mountain of transfiguration, and all hell breaks loose. The devil is waiting for them in verse 14. Uh, It just doesn't take long at all. And and this is how it works. But you've got to understand this. You will have mountaintop experiences with Christ, just like Peter did. But you don't get to live there. You can't just say, let's build a house and never, ever come down. It's always going to involve a coming down. Because you still got life to live, and Jesus still has a cross before him, right? Your life is going to be lived down in the mess of the world. That's where... That's where we follow Jesus. So thankfully, even as Peter speaks and says dumb stuff, nobody waits for him. The cloud comes. The scripture says that the cloud comes, that this amazing cloud comes and envelops them. And then the voice of God begins to speak, the voice of the Father. Now, what's that about? On the one hand, I love the fact that God the Father doesn't stand around to let Peter finish. 
You know, it says, even as he was talking, because he don't matter here, you know, even as he's talking, cloud comes. What's the cloud? All through Scripture, there are these moments where the cloud comes like that, this, this cloud. And you know in those moments that God's presence is manifest in a, in, in a very real way. But, but why the cloud? The cloud on Mount Sinai when Moses got the Ten Commandments. The cloud in the tabernacle as Moses would come and go. I mean, what is this cloud? What's it for? Well, the cloud is for your protection. You understand, of course, as Scripture says all the way through, you can't look at God's face. You can't stare at this God. You just can't. So if he comes into your vicinity with any sort of manifest presence, understand, your life is over. You can't bear it. You are not. You're a creature of dust, and you are a sinful, sinful person, and you can't possibly stand in the presence of his holiness. It will evaporate you. No question. And this is exactly what's happening here. The bright cloud comes and overshadows. The bright cloud comes, and understand, it doesn't take in Peter, James, and John. you got to look closely at that. The, the, the cloud envelops Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, but then the voice speaks from out of the cloud to Peter, James, and John. So they're outside the cloud. But the cloud is what actually protects them. It's the cloud that keeps them from staring into the holiness that honestly would flatten them. You with me? So the cloud comes, overshadows them, and a voice from the cloud says, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. If what I said was true, if, if this is for the disciples, if this is for Peter, James, and John, and then by extension, you and me, if, if, if all of this is for them, then then it's all about those three words, listen to him. That's the point. Listen to him. Listen to him, even when he stands between Moses the lawgiver and Elijah the prophet. This is my son. This is the one whom I love. This is the one who brings me great joy. Listen to him. You listen to him. You listen to him when he speaks of glory. You listen to him when he speaks about the majesties of heaven. You listen to him when he talks about preparing a place for you. But you listen to him when he talks about the cross. You listen to him when he talks about suffering. You listen to him when he talks about being taken in the hands of sinful men and, and, and crucified on a cross. You listen to him when he talks about being in the ground for three days. You listen to him when he comes up beside you and whispers in your ear your new name. You listen to him. You listen to him when he says he'll rise again in three days. This is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Peter, who thought when Jesus talked about the cross that, that Jesus needed some correction. God the Father says, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. You listen to him. Now what ha happens next is just amazing. At that moment, verse 6, the disciples were terrified and fell face down on the ground. Anything like that ever happened to you? 
Why do they fall face? I mean, just a minute. I mean, just a verse ago, you know, Peter was standing up like with the plans for a subdivision and he's calling real estate agents and he's all on top of everything talking. And now Peter himself is flat and it's face down in the ground. What happened? What's going on now? Well, it's the presence of God. It's the presence of God descended on this mountain. It is the voice of the Father. And Peter, James, and John, they go down on the ground, facing the dirt. Why? Because they assume their life is over. They assume their life is over. Like on an airplane, when they, when they talk about, in the, in the, they're always happy when they say it. In the, you know, in the instance that we begin to lose pressure, you know, masks will come down, and then if you keep listening, or if you look at their little book, they actually demonstrate the crash position. So I assume if we ever have to take the crash position, what's coming next? The crash. So Peter, James, and John, in this moment, with Jesus in his glory, and Moses and Elijah standing there, and even though those dudes are dead, Moses and Elijah standing right there, and now God the Father comes down in the cloud with a voice like thunder, they assume the crash positions. They assume their life is over. There's no coming back from this. You don't stand in the presence of God as a sinner and live. You don't look into the blazing glory of his face and walk away from that. They just hit the dirt because they assume their lives are over. Do you understand anything about this? Remember how the whole sermon starts. You really can't begin to relate to Jesus for who he is as long as you don't know who he is. And this is Jesus in his glory. This is Jesus in all of his magnificent holiness. This is Jesus who reveals himself for who he is with a glory that absolutely will evaporate you, will vaporize you. I mean, these men are flattened. Have you ever really known him in his glory? We've been walking in this house for 150 years in Woodburn. And we just walk right in here and we say we're in his presence and we sing songs to him, and I'm telling you, we don't even ever tremble. We don't think about any of this. I mean, when's the last time you felt like you should fall on your face? This isn't how you think about Jesus at all. When God the Father says, listen to him, you don't listen to him unless he says something that you already want to do. Unless he says something that sort of flatters you or falls in line with the plans that you already had. You're not listening to Jesus. This is what we need. We need this right here. We need what Peter, James, and John needed. We need a revelation of who Jesus is. We need to somehow have our own idea of him transfigured so that we can see him as he is and therefore worship him in the way that he deserves. Fear him. Fall on our faces before him. Tremble before him. Peter, James, and John just crash positions, hit the face. What happens next? The scripture says Jesus moves over to them, touches them, says, do not be afraid. They open their eyes, and what does it say? They saw only Jesus. What would it take? What would it take in my life so that you could say that I'm a man who sees only Jesus. Because I want to be a man that sees only Jesus. 
What would it take in your life so that that would be true of you, that, that, that you could be a person who just sees only Jesus? I think it's got something to do with the terror, the falling on their faces. The thing about this moment is that you'll see it in several places in Scripture where someone will fall on their face before Jesus, and and you'll notice a pattern that Jesus will always move toward the person who falls on her face before. Jesus always moves in their direction. So if you feel like it's been a long time since you felt close to Jesus, I would just ask, when's the last time you fell on your face before him? Because he will always come near the man who falls on his face before Jesus. They fall on their faces. Jesus moves over. He touches them. He says, do not be afraid. They look up. It's only Jesus. Walking down the mountain, Jesus says, don't don't tell anybody what you've seen. Don't tell anybody about this till later. As far as we know, they didn't tell anybody. Then after the resurrection, they told everybody. (laughs) It was a private moment. It was something that Jesus only allowed Peter, James, and John to witness. But then they told the story later. They tell the story here because we need this story. Lord knows we need this story. We need to know who Jesus is. We need to know his glory. We need to know that following him doesn't necessarily mean we get to live on a mountaintop in his glory. We, we got to come down, pick up our cross, and follow him. We have to see him as he is, so that we can relate to him for who he is. Disciples were terrified and fell face down on the ground. Jesus came over and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, Moses and Elijah were gone. They saw only Jesus. Pray with me. Oh, Jesus, it's been a long time since we could say that that we see only you. I'm not even sure, Lord, on most Sundays we can say that we even see you. God, I don't know if it's because this house becomes so familiar, Lord. We we walk into this house Sunday after Sunday, and we we sing songs of glory, and, and, and we stand before you, Lord, without trembling, without any sort of fear, without any sort of reverence or respect. As a matter of fact, Lord, we can sleep right through most of it. Most of it, Lord, absolutely doesn't stir us or stimulate us or even bring us into any sort of serious thought, Lord. To speak of trembling before you, to speak of somehow knowing your glory, to imagine that we would surrender, we would flatten ourselves before your authority to command our lives, Lord. This is not really part of our experience. But we need this, Lord Jesus. We need you to be transfigured 
before our eyes so that we can understand who you are, the glory that is yours, the authority, the power. Lord Jesus, it's been so long since we've trembled, since we've had any stroke of fear in your presence. We hardly acknowledge you. We rarely listen. God, help us. Pray that today would be the day, Lord, when whatever it takes, whatever, Lord, we need, whatever you will do, help us to see you, to be amazed once more in your presence, to bow before you and give our lives. Even if it requires us, Lord, to pick up a cross of our own, to follow you through dark paths of suffering, Lord, whatever it takes, if we can only be with you, if we can only see you, Jesus, we pray that you would take our lives, take our hearts, take our eyes, and help us to see. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, but for our own sakes. Amen.